Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to a special collaboration episode. Recently, myself and Alec Avdokov of the Life and Times of Frederick the Great podcast sat down to talk about Frederick the Great and his invasion of Silesia in December 1740. Now, I love doing these collaboration episodes, uh, talking about other history podcasters, about areas of history they're really interested in is, of course, right up my street. And if you know me, you know that I'm a big fan of Freddy as well. We've covered his exploits to this period in our Poland is Not Yet Lost Patreon series, which, of course, you should check out, although it should be set on a biased source when it comes to that. And I would love to do more of these collaboration episodes. It's just the actual lack of time. And thankfully, Alec has been very patient with arranging all these things. So, yeah, make sure and check out his podcast. He's only 21 years old, as far as I'm aware. So he's a full 10 years younger than me, which is kind of disgusting, considering the fact that he knows more about Freddy than really any 21-year-old should. And his podcast, as you might suspect, looks at Frederick the Great, but it doesn't just look at the man himself. It also looks at his life and times, which gives him a great chance to go all around Europe during this fascinating time. And Frederick the Great ruled from 1740 to 1786, so you really have a period of history that can be seen as the kind of prelude to the French Revolution, and Alec likes to think of his podcast in that sense, and I think it's fair enough. Alec's scholarly attention to detail and his clear passion for the subject really shines through in his show. So do check his show out if you're in any way interested in Frederick the Great, and you should be. And give him support anyway, because independent podcasters are making history thrive with every new episode they release. And I also love doing collaborations like these because it's a great way to give a platform to podcasters you may not have heard of. Although I'm only able to enjoy a small portion of the 8 billion people, we recently passed 8 billion people in this world. Oh, by the way, and a other side note, listen to my discussion with Dr. Jennifer Shuba about demographics that we released a few months ago, because that milestone seems like a good enough reason to do it. Anyway, yeah, small as my show is in the grand scheme of things, being able to give a platform to passionate podcasters like Alec is really a perk of the position I'm in now after doing this for 10 years. Perhaps in 10 years' time, Alec will be invading Silesia himself under Frederick the Great's banner. But until then, make sure you check out his show, which comes highly recommended. Thanks to Alec for joining me. 
And I hope you enjoy this conversation, but what can you expect? Well, we talk about, of course, the actual time period, so say late 1740 to early 1741. We place the conflict that basically brought Frederick the Great into new heights of power and fame. We put that conflict into context, and we also talk about a few other random things as well. Frederick's military accomplishments, the political context of his invasion, what was going on in Austria at the time, why Frederick believed it was the perfect opportunity to strike, how the Helderman Empire compares with the European Union, whether the Habsburgs could have taken some lessons from House of the Dragon, and many more topics besides. It was a real fun conversation, and if you are a history podcaster and you would like to join me on this show to talk about things you're interested in too, then don't hesitate to reach out. Now, it might take me a while to reach back out to you because, well, you know, PhD and all that, but I'll do my best. And I'm really happy I did join Alec for this conversation because that's what this medium is all about, connecting with other history nerds like you listening right now and just shooting the breeze on fascinating history. So thanks to Alec for joining me, and of course thanks to you for supporting or listening to this show. It really means a lot, and I really, really appreciate it. Alrighty, the next voices you hear will be mine and Frederick the Great's. No, I'm joking. Next voices you hear will be mine and Alec's. So, uh, how, are, how are things going, Zach? Things are going great, Alec. Thank you so much for having me on, or me having you on, or wh- wh- whatever you, whatever way you put it, because we're both appearing on each other's feeds, so this is going to be yeah, great. So, today we are going to talk about the invasion of Silesia in December 1740 by Frederick the Great. Before he was great, he was just Frederick and... I suppose, had a lot of ambitions and was a bit obsessed with glory. How, how much does your, uh, does your audience know about the uh, structure of the Holy Roman Empire? Oh, what a question. Well, I'll save you Voltaire's famous quote of not being holy an empire or really Roman at all. I suppose I just kind of brought it in there anyway. But we have gone through it a good bit with the Thirty Years' War. So we have the kind of broad spectrum. But obviously by 1740, things had things had changed a little bit. There were more electors floating around and... You could argue between Saxony going for the Polish crown and Prussia trying to be a kingdom all of its own. And then you have Hanover as well, also being ruled by the British. It's kind of, it's almost like everyone's trying to take a piece of of the pie or make their own way in the world while still being in the Holy Roman Empire. So it's a very interesting time of change. I actually like to make the analogy by that point. Essentially, they're all independent states United in very huge air quotes around one emperor. Mm. I I like to make the analogy that uh, essentially all the United States, if they're all independent and the president was just the figurehead and sometimes the states would follow the lead of the president and other times they don't, Uh, Hmm. such as the one time where in the Holy Roman Empire, Bavaria chose to side with France against the Holy Roman Empire in the War of Spanish Succession. Absolutely, yeah. And the interesting thing about that was that it seems as though the Allies didn't quite expect that to happen. In the initial years of the War of the Spanish Succession, Bavaria was a real pain for 
the Allied war plans and it kind of soaked up a lot of attention and basically helped the French kind of reinforce their their border areas, really. Yeah, that's very true. I'd like to think that uh, the Holy Roman Empire was just... It, it was more so a, just a confederation of states. So you, you can make somewhat of an argument that it's, it's similar to how the EU is today, but uh, I'm sure you know much more about that than, than I do, considering you... Un- unfortunately. Your country, your country is in the <laughs> European Union, and I'm just mm-hmm. the, the bystander watching the, the dominoes fall, so... <laughs> well let's hope no more dominoes fall the whole brexit situation is bad enough oh and uh yeah i mean european unity is something i do believe quite strongly and i think the uh the argument for it is is definitely strong especially when you look at what's happening with russia invading ukraine and all that jazz oh, but yeah. Yeah. certainly the the parallels are very interesting so you'd have the eu commission president would probably be the closest thing to the holy roman emperor but of course there is a, a lot kind of a, a lot of independent uh, initiatives and independent policy going on outside of what the eu is kind of dictating i mean a great example of that is france and emmanuel macron the french president basically finding a way for france in in the world while using the eu as a kind of pedestal so i wonder if you could argue that some holy roman empire states while benefiting from the security and ties of the Holy Roman Empire were also trying to kind of make their own way in the world. I mean, Bavaria is a, a good example of that. Bavaria and definitely Saxony as well. Yeah, Saxony. With, with the War of Polish Succession, there was Stanislaus Leszczynski, who is a member of the Polish uh, nobility, uh, going against a Saxon. Both of those people were supported by different sides of Europe. Mm-hmm. And with, with France, with Stanislaus Leszczynski and the Saxon claimant by Austria and Russia and, and Prussia as well. Saxony could have been our Prussia. Yeah. Because if you think about it, say Saxony was the one who invades Silesia. Now you have Saxony connected with Poland mm-hmm. and they have this huge, massive super state where... Prussia is completely blocked out. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. actually one of the reasons why Frederick the Great invaded Silesia. Silesia is this uh, province that used to be a part of uh, Bohemia, and Bohemia now in the Czech Republic, and Silesia will now be a part in what is today Poland. This area is extremely important to the Habsburg Empire. It has a bunch of linen industry. It was a quarter of Austria's tax revenue, and by the time Prussia overtook Silesia, it increased its population by 50%. So this is an extremely important province. Not only was uh, Frederick looking at the economic perspective, but it was, he was looking at possible uh, rivals uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. So it wasn't, just about, it wasn't just about great power politics. It was middling power politics as well, because at this point, Prussia was not quite large enough to be a great power, but it wasn't small enough so that it was just the, the middling power in Europe. So, yeah, I would I, I would say that because Frederick the Great did invade Silesia, just transformed so many things, not only culturally, 
politically, economically, I would say that overall my podcast is the uh, context you could use for behind why the French Revolution occurred. Yeah, and absolutely how the German states, basically, the the question of German dualism, as they called, will Germany go towards Berlin or will it go towards Vienna? That question really starts to appear during this period. And, and you're right, the having looked at this period from the kind of Polish perspective for my Poland is Not Yet Lost series, it's really fascinating to ask what might have been because these Saxon kings really had a chance to kind of change the course of German history and make the question more about should it be Dresden or Vienna rather than Berlin. It was strange, though, because I think Frederick might have been expecting a bit too much. He might have overestimated his Saxon neighbor because especially after the War of the Polish Succession, it didn't seem like Augustus III, the elector of Saxony and new king of Poland, it didn't seem like he was all that determined to do anything now that he'd gotten this Polish crown. And he seemed very happy to kind of just exist and use Polish resources and everything for the purposes of prestige, but not really increase his power all that much. And one thing that he was quite clear on was how much he owed his position to Russia. So in that sense, I think while on the map of Europe, uh, inter, uh, uh, a continuously connected landmass and, and, and statelet of Saxony and then Silesia and then Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth would have been extremely impressive. I'm not sure if Augustus III was really the right man to leverage those things because he didn't really didn't really seem like he was all that interested in leveraging anything except the resources of his country to give himself a, a nice, comfortable, quiet life. Oh, I mean, you could make that argument for almost all of the European states uh, by the time that Frederick the Great uh, came to power as king. In 1740, you had Louis XV, who, as a ruler, is not very impressive at all. You had uh, King George II, who was just a puppet behind the Parliament of Great Britain. And you had Charles VI, who was one of the most, uh, I would say, lethargic because <laughs> his court, I think on average, was about 70 years old as far as the, the average age of the court. And this was at a time when the life expectancy, I, I know for Britain, was uh, 39 years old. And you have a Yeesh. whole bunch of 70-year-old men just talking about each other about oh what's the new wig of this season supposed to be like <laughs> whereas whereas prussia prussia has the tradition that the sovereign is the first servant of the state this goes all mm -hmm. the way back to the great elector uh who is extremely underrated in prussian history and what he was able to do to make what was then brandenburg into a power that wasn't constantly stepped on it is it's honestly fascinating but sadly i don't have the time to go into that because frederick the great is very much more famous yeah that's very true it, it is interesting though in in that sense the great electors kind of period of rule and frederick the great's period of rule almost exactly mirror each other by about 100 years the great elector was from 1640 to 
I think 86, whereas, and you'll be able to correct me on this, Frederick the Great was 1740 to either 1780 or or the late 80s. I'm not exactly sure which, but it, it is remarkable that they're so close like that. 40 to 1786 and that for Frederick the Great. And then the Great Elector was till uh, 1640 to 1688. I, I oh, there we that. go. Yeah, because I do remember that uh, Frederick the Great ruled eight, uh, 46 years, which is yeah. honestly, for, for that time, for the amount of battles that he was in, it, it's it's like the old uh, the Bible quote, who lives by the sword dies by the sword. It's surprising that he did not die by the sword. If, if you <laughs> consider how many battles he was in, how many horses were shot under him, my goodness. Mm. Uh, uh, going back to uh, Charles VI, we have to go and understand the uh, pra- pragmatic sanction. Sure. Because this this is one of the reasons why Frederick the Great had the casus belli, or the, uh, the, the cause for war, in the first place. Because... The House of Habsburg was able to conquer a whole bunch of Europe to oversimplify things completely by marriage. They are able to bring up their status and wealth and power by marriage. And by the time they were the top of the European hierarchy, they decided, you know what? We don't want anybody else to do the same thing we did, so we're just going <laughs> to intermarry between ourselves. <laughs> it's it's actually I don't know if you're keeping up with the latest uh, series, but House of the Dragon very much kind of it's very reminiscent of that because you have a powerful house in in that case the Targaryen dynasty who are again very inbred, and they have been at the top of the food chain for quite a while in that case in Westeros, and there is also a succession crisis where the daughter of the ruling king is declared as the heir and it's never been done before and it's hugely controversial. And the only difference really is that in House of the Dragon, there's kind of stronger claimants that are that are male to the throne, whereas in our real life, which seems strange that this, actually, this stuff all, all actually happened, but in our real life, there aren't that many strong claimants other than, you know, I married her sister and that's how I'm going to claim, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting though, to see those things. I wonder where George R. R. Martin got his inspiration from. He doesn't have to look all that far into, into history. Oh no, not at all. Um, but you, you sufficed it quite well as far as talking about uh, the house of dragon. It, it almost parallels perfectly to, to our timeline and actual history. In, in the pragmatic sanction, it was the idea that uh, Charles VI of Austria's daughter or any children that he would uh, be able to have would be able to inherit the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. There, there were other claimants, such as Bavaria. Bavaria's Charles Albert believed that he could take over the Holy Roman Empire. And he actually would, in our timeline, create that only time where the Habsburgs were not the uh, emperors from the 1400s all the way until the end in 1806. So Bavaria was able to create the the claim that Charles Albert deserved to be the Holy Roman Empire emperor. Yeah, and interestingly, it's the Wittelsbach dynasty again. I believe it was 1400 to 1410 that they'd held the 
crown before. And basically from 1438, the Habsburgs had it in their back pocket and wouldn't let it go. So it kind of it does paint a picture of how dicey the Habsburg position was, that this legacy had been taken from them for the first time in 300 years. Austria had shown that it was very weak. Mm-hmm. Um, so Prince Eugene of Savoy, a very huge and important victor, uh, figure in um, Austrian history, was able to help the Austrian military show that it had power until he slowly got older. And through that time, he actually had dementia. And when somebody bases, when a state bases a military or state function on the individual, it will go wrong Mm -hmm. because characteristics of that individual will slowly decline as they age and eventually die off. Sure. You, you you would see the same thing after Frederick the Great died. Uh, state institutions that were united around Frederick the Great and his work ethic and his logistical nitpicking, it would eventually decay. And so in 1806, by the time in, Napoleon invaded Prussia, mm-hmm. it was a shell. Of, the Prussian army was a shell of its former self. Yeah, and that's only 20 years after he died. Like, it's crazy. Charles VI was 55 years old, and he was going into his reign just believing that, okay, we just lost to the Turks. I don't think things can get much worse from here, so I'm going to go on a hunting trip just to clear things up in my mind. So he goes on this hunting trip in Hungary. This is the most incredible story that i've gotten from the 1700s during a dinner he had this bowl of mushrooms (laughs) and because of this bowl of mushrooms history will change forever because he had food poisoning he would eventually die later that month and his daughter maria Teresa would become the heiress of the austrian Habsburg royal family Charles VI believed that there was no way that Maria Theresa was actually going to rule. He, he expected that his husband would, uh, her husband would rule through proxy. And so he never spent the time to educate Maria Theresa in uh, ways to rule. So you have a very young, very inexperienced Maria Theresa on the throne of the Habsburg Empire, while everybody else, every buddy in Central Europe was just looking at the Habsburgs with drool on their lips, thinking, (laughs) okay, what territory can we get from this lady? And um, the first one to strike, obviously, was Frederick the Great. He wrote to his chief minister, when one is a favorable situation, should one make use of it or not? If the Habsburgs are in such a weak position, and its allies, Britain and Russia, are off distracted on their own, and there's nothing else that could stop me, why don't I take that opportunity? It's very famous example, Maria Theresa coming to the throne and people perceiving her as weak, but it's by no means the only time that this happened. I mean, you mentioned the Great Northern War a few times, but one of the main reasons that that war came into being was because the well, in this case, Augustus II of Saxony, Poland, 
you had uh, the Russian Tsar, and then you also had the Danes all tried to attack Sweden because Charles the Twelfth was seventeen or eighteen years old, and they perceived him as a, a young, weak, inexperienced king. So this tendency of of equating the power of the state with the inexperience or experience of of the new monarch is uh, quite a surprisingly common trend and has led to war in the past. So, I mean, in the end of the Northern War, I suppose you could argue Sweden's enemies were victorious. So maybe from that, even though it took 21 years, maybe from that they took took heart and thought that, hey, maybe we can make lightning strike twice. So we've talked a good bit about 1740 itself and the kind of context of the period. Maybe run us through what you think would be going through Maria Theresa's mind when having been assured by Frederick himself, no less, that they were going to uphold pragmatic sanction, that in fact a Prussian army is invading one of your richest provinces and intends to take it away. Silesia itself was guarded by a very small Austrian army. I'm pretty sure it was around 2,000 infantry. 1,000 cavalry, and a total of 3,000 men. Maria Theresa was like, well, we're screwed. And, <laughs> the, and, the, and the, uh, the Austrian court was like, okay, we, we can just uh, give up Silesia. And Maria Theresa said no. Almost all of her court said that there's, there's no way that we could defeat this strong army, especially with how our resources are spread completely thin uh the habsburg monarchy was uh had just lost the war with the turks and did not have very many reliable troops to count upon mm. but maria Theresa was able to go to hungary and ask for the hungarians to mobilize different uh i think around she asked for forty thousand troops and she only received about twenty thousand. however she was able to piece through a bunch of uh, different soldiers throughout her uh, empire and bring an army of around 40,000 into what is uh, now the Czech Republic into what was then Bohemia. And uh, in the winter of 1740, uh, Frederick was able to uh, go and take over Silesia in a very quick lightning strike was only able to was able to occupy almost the entire territory in about a month when armies were moving much slower than Frederick the Great's army at that time. Yeah. Um, one thing that one aspect that is often overlooked is logistics just in history in general. Oh yeah, because definitely. All of Frederick the Great's advisors were really against the invasion in general was because he was going to invade Silesia in the winter. Yeah, the winter. It goes against all of the uh, ideas of war at time at the time that we should not go to war in the winter. We should just focus on our ability to to just make it through, and then we can f- we can work on the military in the in the spring. But Frederick said, "When will we have this possibility ever again?" He he said specifically in a quote. If one does not advance, one retreats. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And so he took that principle. And he put it on Silesia. And with that, he was able to invade and conquer Silesia in, in, a, in about a month. So, yeah, it, it wasn't just politically unexpected for the Austrians. They, they, they might have had some kind of idea he was planning something, but having assured them that he would abide by the terms, at, at the very least, they might have thought, I mean, it's the winter. So even if he does attack us, it's not going to be now. It'll be in the spring or in the summer during the campaigning season so either way we have a bit of a breather to have our army repaired and kind of plan for the next few months but then bam <laughs> like yeah. out of nowhere not just against all the political agreements but all the kind of the expectations and norms of, of the day we, we would have thought it would be a complete logistical nightmare to try and invade anywhere in europe i mean that part of of europe during the winter like you can expect to find a good deal of snow, as of course they did. Oh yeah. Now, if if you want to even take this a step further uh, and look around the entire huge scope of climate back in the day, this was during the Little Ice Age as well. So, with global warming happening today, we don't necessarily know the full feel of the full scale of the winter at that time. So, even though we do have poor winters now as far as uh, snow and things go like that. It was worse back in those days. Yeah. It was, it was a lot worse. Frederick had to face the elements and he also had to move his father's shiny army down south and make this daring attack. Uh, probably on the understanding that once he invaded, he wouldn't have to fight an actual pivotal battle for a few months. So in that sense, it might have been like more recommended not just the element of surprise but also tactically he could take this province that isn't very well defended and he wouldn't actually have to face an austrian army until the austrians pick their jaws off the floor and uh, find some kind of way to send an army north 
So in that sense, it, it does seem like a good tactical decision, but I'm sure Maria Teresa was very depressed when she found out. Oh, not just depressed. She was mad with the fury of vengeance. <laughs> I think I think that it, it goes back to the idea that Frederick actually didn't think he was going to fight at all. He just thought he was going to strong arm the Austrians into saying, um, oh yeah, we surrender. Uh, here's Silesia for you. Uh, you can take the keys whenever you want. Uh, it, it's yours. He he went back to Berlin after the uh, December campaign and let the, his uh, generals on the ground deal with the different forts and strong points that were left. So he fully expected that the diplomatic work to begin at that point and Silesia would just be something that he could have now. Obviously, that did not occur because Maria Theresa has revenge in her eyes. And uh, it, it goes all the way to through the First Silesian War. Maria Theresa eventually creates a peace with Frederick because she was being invaded by the French and Bavarians and the Saxons all at once. There were multiple battles that were key to Frederick staying in Silesia. And the, the first battle that Frederick fights is the Battle of Molwitz. This was during the, the May of 1741. The Austrian uh, field marshal, Field Marshal Neiberg, was in Bohemia bringing troops and eventually counter-invaded Silesia to take back the uh, former Austrian province. Now, in, in Molwitz, when the two armies finally met up, Frederick did not have his best general with him. Sh- sure, he had uh, a Field Marshal Schwerin, but he left the, the famous Prince Leopold of Anhalt-Dessau behind him, uh, the, named the Old Dessauer. Frederick the Great believed that he didn't want to have tutors with him. He wanted to prove his own mettle. Huh. Uh, didn't exactly didn't exactly go. I mean, to spoil, I mean, your listeners obviously know what happens next, but for the sake of my own, I mean in terms of your first ever battle, it didn't exactly go how Frederick was expecting. Oh my goodness, no. The the Prussian army deployed very slowly, very, very much so by the books. They, they created their battle line in, in the snow, and they marched forward slowly, and then they just stood there. But the Austrians, their, their cavalry, one of the best cavalries in Europe, mind you, they decided, all right, the Prussians are about to attack us. Let's attack them first. Uh, the Austrian cavalry charged and charged and charged, and the Prussians did nothing. The Prussian cavalry did nothing. Uh, Frederick actually had to flee the battle because it looked like he was going to lose and he did not want to be captured and become this uh, puppet king where uh, he was in Austrian captivity. During this time, it was clear to uh, Field Marshal Schwerin that all he needed to do was just reform the infantry, bring back confidence to the men, and go on a big sweeping counter-offensive against the Austrian lines. And that's exactly what happened. So Frederick the Great won his first battle without actually being there. Yeah, it's an interesting asterisk next to his first victory that it wasn't even 
from like his own prowess. It was more from his subordinates. I often find with these great men in history, I mean, they're famous and deservedly so, but like with Louis XIV, they're very fortunate to have some very capable people around them. And Frederick was certainly no exception to that. He had fantastic generals, like you said. And if the soldiers had lost heart by seeing their king fleeing the field, I mean, it could have could have all been lost, had like stability and morale not been restored. But I suppose that's the kind of consequences of so many years of good quality drilling and good education in, in tactics and in forbearance that his infantry basically won the day, whereas it looked for a time like the Austrian cavalry might win the day. Prussian mu- musketry was very important. I, I do have a, a, an episode about that, uh, two, two episodes about the, the Prussian infantry. If one soldier turns and flees, that might cause other soldiers in that very platoon to leave as well and flee because yeah uh, with linear warfare you have very bunched up lines in order to create a mass fire but you also have the trouble is if discipline breaks in any single way you're looking on a route and oftentimes after the battle when the cavalry was prowling against the enemy that that's when the most uh, deaths and casualties occurred. Absolutely, yeah. the The real strength of these units and the regiments that are standing there, static. We imagine them stoically watching their friends fall. They knew in in their hearts that if they shattered and and fled, they were as good as dead. The strength of those units are in their cohesion and their discipline. And that's something that I really kind of learned from the 1600s and really the 1500s as well. Those periods of so-called military revolutions, it became less about the skill of the individual soldier and more about the fighting prowess of the unit itself. And if nothing else, the firepower of one musketeer is much less than the coordinated firepower drills of several men lined up in rows so that that explains we might look at at those formations and wonder why they were kind of lined up like that or how they could see their friends get killed in such large numbers and and of course people did rout but there was this understanding having drilled together that the real strength of the unit was in its ability to stick together i had a professor who was very who is a German culture professor who is uh, very interested in a uh, time period that we're talking about. And he said that Frederick the Great treated his army like a machine. He had uh, replaceable bits and pieces throughout the army that if one bit of the army was taken away or destroyed, it could be replaced. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's not a very kind of romantic way of looking at things, but we kind of we might put a kind of uh, a mask of of glory on these events, on on these battles and stuff. But the the reality is, this conflict happened because of the will, pretty much of one man. And while his soldiers might have had an attachment to him later on in his reign, it really was all about him and. The army was an instrument for him. It wasn't a group of people that he cared deeply about because, of course, if he did, they wouldn't be anywhere near this place risking their lives for his glory. Ironically, the weird thing is that he 
somewhat seemed to care about the individual soldiers and in that if his soldiers were fit and the best in the world, then he would have the best army in the world. But sure. he slightly cared about them individually and in that he was able to give really good eulogies later on in his life. He mm -hmm. was able to remember names, remember uh, the faces of the people individually, ironically give good speeches about them after they had passed away. But it took very many Prussian lives and deaths in order for him to be able to uh, seek his glory, as it were. Yeah, it's the, the old adage of how... How many lives is one man's glory worth? It's, it kind of all comes back to that. But I mean, obviously, there was nothing exceptional about this way of looking at things. There's no real use in casting Frederick as some kind of heartless fiend who was unusual for his time. He was really just continuing on this trend of seeking glory for glory's sake. And of course, also strategic and financial reasons as well, bolstering the realm of Prussia, which would in turn bolster his own honor and prestige. The search for glory. That was the one thing he was looking for. Yeah. He was uh, he was a neoclassicist, so he had read books from Sophocles to uh, to Plutarch to all these different classical writers, and he firmly believed that he was reliving the glory days of Rome. He when he invaded Silesia, he uh, alluded to that by saying. I have crossed the Rubicon with flags flying and drums beating. Hmm. Yeah, the the long, long shadow of Rome over this period of time is really quite fascinating. I mean, I know you get some people these days who are pretty obsessed with Rome, understandably, but it is incredible to think that 1,700 years after Rome, well, I suppose thirteen or 1,400 after Rome had actually fell, but the level of influence that was carried down to that point is is really incredible. Like just for those that might not be aware, the actual process of standing still with your lines of infantry and firing and then wheeling to the back of the line in a process called a countermarch while the other people in your line fire, that was based on Roman tactics as well. That was built from the Dutch basically researching and looking through old ancient records for inspiration and getting this idea that if they could stand there like Roman soldiers did with their throwing, throwing their javelins and then wheeling to the back of the line, if they could do that with muskets, then they would be able to redefine warfare. And it was bloody and it was difficult. And the first time that was actually done was in the year 1600. And during a battle there between the Spanish and, and the Dutch the whole practice was arguably kind of born and then it grew from there through military drill manuals to the point where we have in the 1740s. But really, the debt that these people owed to Rome is really incredible. Oh, I 100% agree. And uh, the, the, death, the debt that I owe to the History of Rome podcast is also important too. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, without uh, Mike Duncan's History of Rome, I don't think uh, many of us would be uh, uh, podcasting right now. So. No, certainly not. No, uh, his contributions are are certainly uh, are certainly up there. You really can't deny them. I think History of England too, just because for me as a as a non American person hearing an American voice, I mean, it's something that I'm kind of 
not not necessarily familiar with but i'm like oh yeah it's an american podcast or he's american making a podcast but when i heard an english guy uh as an irish person i was like oh, well if the freaking english can do it then why can't i do it so uh, <laughs> that 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 drove me on <laughs> yeah uh, i bet yeah so frederick the great was able to defeat the austrians in uh, two battles uh Molwitz and Hotuzitz. And uh, at Hotuzitz, the, the Austrians could have been defeated more according to Frederick the Great, but he chose not to pursue that victory to its entirety because he could uh, show Maria Theresa that he was a man that she could work with. Right. And by that, time, that point in time, uh, Vienna had almost been taken multiple times, uh, either by Frederick or by the, the French and Bavarian army that we haven't actually talked about. But France and Bavaria and Saxony all went to war against Austria with Prussia in 1742. Now, after Austria lost to the Prussians, they are in such a weakened state that it was time for Austria to make peace with Prussia. And yeah. so that's what happened in uh, June of 1742. And that is where I shall leave you at. <laughs> well, there is certainly a lot of juicy diplomacy to come. So, so if, if you wish to see what this action would have looked like, you will have to tune in to Alex's podcast, The History of Frederick the Great or Frederick the Great's Life and Times. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.